0: be sacred and undeniable. Fish and visitors stink after three days. A pair of good ears will ring dry a hundred tongues. We hold these truths to be self-evident. You know, Tom, I like that better. Greetings and welcome. This is Dr. Benjamin Franklin, your host of the Benjamin Franklin for President podcast. Rather self-serving, perchance, or maybe just too aggrandizing for such a humble leather apron man as myself, but I hope you'll forgive and enjoy the program. Today it is being hosted by me to welcome two listeners who have written in with questions. Most remarkable is that these are not local people to me. These are people from, well, one is from your Salt Lake City, Utah, and the other from New Zealand, now, this is a country that's barely on my uh, awareness back in my day, but here it is because of the miracles of your time and your advancement and communications that they heard our humble first two episodes and decided to write me through your, um, what I would guess call your email, um, And they have written, and so this podcast is dedicated to them and to the answers to their questions the first question is from david b in salt lake city utah dear ma'am sir i am a fan of benjamin franklin currently i am reading his autobiography there i came across his thirteen virtues the one i am most interested in is chastity according to my definition of chastity there should be no premarital sexual relations and only sexual relations with your wife once married Based on my definition, Franklin had big problems with this virtue. According to the Internet, he had a child out of wedlock and a common-law marriage with Miss Reed. According to his autobiography, he took Miss Reed to wife September 1st, 1730. Did Franklin have a different view of chastity than I do? Was Franklin able to marry Miss Reed, or was it like marriage, but wasn't done by the law because of her previous husband? Did Franklin have a child out of wedlock, and was this before he wrote his Thirteen Virtues? Sincerely, David B. Well, David B., I'm afraid I think your expression is, you have me. Um, It is absolutely true that I did marry Deborah Reed um, on the 1st of September, seventeen thirty, but it was what I think you would call it what we called a common law arrangement, where we simply set up as man and wife. You see, she had married previously uh, to a man named John Rogers, who was a potter, and to rhyme, also a rotter, a very good workman, but a very disastrous person, who may have been married even before marrying Deborah, and who left her, and we think may have died. Now, what precipitated this was i had run away from boston when but a young lad and had moved myself unto philadelphia where i had become a printer's assistant there i had met miss reed when i was boarding at her father's house and we had formed an attachment but then i this would actually be the subject of another uh, discussion, but I was sent on a, what I would call a wild goose chase, and sent to England, and I was there for eighteen months, and I did not write my fiancée at the time, Deborah, more than once in that eighteen months, and her friends persuaded her that, as it most certainly looked, that I was not coming home, and I was not to be relied upon, and convinced her to marry this good workman, John Rogers." And so she did, but soon after the marriage she realized that he was not a very comfortable man to remain with, and so left him and went back to her parents' house. When I returned, it was a very sad state, and she was very, what you would call, depressed. And we reformed our attachment, and I realized that about the 1730 that I was setting up now as a workman, and that I needed a wife to help me, and to give me comfort as I grew older, and to help start a family— And so we could not marry legally because if we had done so, then I would have become responsible for Mr. Rogers' debts. And if he had returned, he could have caused trouble for claiming that she, Deborah, was committing polyandry, more than one husband, and she could be severely fined or imprisoned or worse. So this was, after all, still in the New England-ish area, and under strong influence of those conservative voices and with with some good reason one does not want to be marrying too many people at the same time it becomes difficult to keep track of who should be called what well so there you have it deborah and i did set up as common-law man and wife and our children uh, two children francis our daughter sarah called sally who was my only direct relative to outlive me but back to the point lord how i do wander uh, those were our two children. Now, of course, there was William, who I brought to the relationship from a former liaison. Uh, the identity of his mother I never did mention and shall not start now, although the presenter may wish to may comment upon that later. But to the point of Mr. B. from Salt Lake, um, the uh, the point was about chastity. Uh, I was born in Boston, but I had left, and I did not hold with many of their puritanical views on things. And it was I quite freely comment in my autobiography, as you call it, my letters to my son, uh, the fact that I spent much time and pleasure with, with low women, as uh, I called them. Um, I think we would refer them to the crude term prostitute. Um and women of easy virtue. And it is said at the time that the resulting William came in the world, half compromised, half improvised, through one of those liaisons. And I will not counter that here. But chastity, chastity, well, you must look in the autobiography for what I meant By chastity, and I do quote here from one edition, and you may pick up these from many sources, as I understand it is still very much in print. That uh, I have 13 virtues, and I may spend more time on these later, but basically temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. Um, of humility, just to give you a little insight, I would sketch a little note there afterwards in this personal um, treatise to try and bring myself to some sort of elevated state of perfection in my moral character. Humility, I meant to imitate Jesus and Socrates, uh, look, thinking of both of them as mortal men, and but men of great sound judgment and personal integrity. But chastity, this is what I wrote. Rarely use venery, but for health or offspring, never to dullness, weakness, or the injury of your own or another's peace or reputation. So that is what I thought of chastity. It was not that one should never uh, trip the light fantastic, um, I think is a term that is sometimes used, or to uh, walk in uh, Cupid's grove, as Mr. Adams may have put it, Uh, but Rather, that one should not destroy others or hurt, as it said, uh, reputation, but it is a good, healthy activity, and despite my later years, I was a very healthy youth, and what was one to do with that hard-to-suppress urge of youth, but give it release from time to time? And that is, again, one of the reasons why I wanted a wife, was to have a publicly acknowledgeable and respectable way of venting that passion of youth. Now, as it was, we only had two children, and I brought in William from another relationship. My father, however, fathered 17 children, so one could say that I came from good stock for the matter of my hard-to-govern passions of youth. I keep using that expression because it seems to be most polite. Now, it is interesting to note that in some editions of my autobiography and reproductions of my writing, that the uh, explanation is somewhat... Uh, difference. I'm now looking at Benjamin Franklin, um, in addition of my writings, from by the author of From Log Cabin to White House, and bought by George H. Selick, bookseller and stationer in Plymouth, awarded um, at King Street Wesleyan Sunday School to an R. Northcott for regular and punctual attendance, January of 1896, so in this edition of my writings, uh, they have, on page 346, they list the thirteen virtues, temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility, with all of the ensuing notes afterwards, uh, temperance, eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation, however, when it gets to chastity, number thir- number 12, which was originally my last virtue, and I was reminded, or made, being, I was brought to mind later by a good Quaker friend that I had lacked greatly humility, so I might want to add that into my virtues of, of attempt. But after chastity, it simply has a series of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven dots. Chastity. Period. Then the seven dots. They do not elaborate what I had elaborated on, so I assuming that they simply wanted the child to remain chaste that was never my personal intention, I assure you, and neither was it them. Uh, but they, however, thought, I guess it seems, that one did not need to elucidate the term, Isn't that interesting? I believe strongly that the natural inclinations should be indulged, Uh, certainly later when I was proposing, after dear Deborah's passing, to the women of the salons in Paris that I was frequenting, Madame Briand, Madame Hildacius, who I seriously asked to marry me, um, that there was much more talk in my actions than there was in The action itself. I had pleurisy, a blood disease. I had the gout, a very painful joint disease, kidney stones. I would take a carriage rather than walk a half a block. And from my weak remembrance, I believe that the act of unchastity requires more energy than a half a block walk, or at least to my way of thinking. So uh, that is the story of chastity, as it appears to me. Now, uh, the uh, question about marriage... Um, as I said, we were common law, and that was well thought of back then as a you know, as a singular state. So, but we never were legally or or nor religiously married, um, and so I don't know if I'm a particularly good example of your uh, founding father's view of what might be a traditional marriage. Ours was certainly not a traditional marriage by your current standards so i guess i would not be possibly a great candidate for your presidency but i still stand for election should you decide to have me serve our second letter this truly is amazing for the distance that this letter has traveled in so quickly comes from kiwi writer todd and evidently is a great fan of the kiwi Rider motorcycle magazine i published a magazine and so congratulate him on his work on his um, and this is what he says from new zealand uh, astounding astounding um, it says hi guys great work i have thus far only listened to the first podcast but found it fairly entertaining i thought the bicycle reference a gem of perspective focus uh, not sure if it was your podcast that said these guys weren't gods they just did the best they could for the good of others unquote, "or some such on that vein i would be interested in franklin's view on the state of global finance the level of household debt and the population's acceptance of it i would also be interested in his thoughts on the quagmire that governments get into catering to the evermore super rich. Uh, Keep it up. Things unknown are things forgot. Uh, Kiwi writer Todd. Well, if I may, Mr. Todd, um, thank you so much for writing for such a long distance, and I, I, I must again congratulate your current society on your e-mail that allows this correspondence to travel so quickly. I wish we could have had this in my time, for indeed a letter might take three months, six months, nine months to reach its destination and then uh, receive an answer back from. So your instantaneous communication and your wealth of knowledge available to you through your intranet is uh, is an enlightened dream. But to the question of Mr. Todd, uh, thank you for your compliments, sir. Um, and I'm glad that you found our podcast entertaining and the the bicycle reference uh, the the fact that I I think that your bicycle is one of the truly great inventions of humankind uh, because it returns such great health and speed of transportation for personal investment uh, independence of travel mode, uh, simple uh, requirements to build and repair and maintain while granting uh, physical and mechanical knowledge to the repair. Certainly everyone could have one and use one. And I, I think uh, that they would be a marvelous and welcome invention in my time. However, they they did come in a bit after my time. But, uh, and yes, it was I that said, I, I didn't quite say these guys weren't gods, but I did say that we were not gods or demigods and should not be regarded. So we simply were doing the best we could with the information we had at hand, as as little and as, uh, as meager as that was. And so certainly in Drafting the Declaration and the legal document, the you know, so semi-legal document of the Constitution. Later, we certainly were looking to uh, give a framework that people could use and adapt to their to their current needs. For one example: the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, as you so lovingly uh, touted, was our best guess at what we needed. If you look at Mr. Um, Madison's draft of that regulation. It was seeking to uh, certainly establish a militia, uh, that a standing army or standing military force was not particularly to be desired, that an army should be brought together and trained and then disbanded. So the fact that you have both the right to militia and a standing military force is somewhat confusing to our mindset. Um, but certainly what is even more confusing is the fact that your guns now go beyond anything we could have ever thought of. So this is not to say that the Second Amendment should be stripped or this ended or guns should be outlawed. It is simply saying that really you should rewrite the Second Amendment to whatever your society wishes to see. I'm getting off the subject, but that is just a point. Uh, again, I'm not trying to say that you should or should not have guns. I'm only simply saying that your society should decide exactly what that should mean by rewriting it and establishing for yourself, in your own comfort zone, as I believe you would put it, what arms should mean and what citizens should have as in way of rights of owning and bearing them. Don't be locked in with what we said. Rewrite your constitution. As General Washington said when asked how long he thought the constitution would last before it was completely rewritten, he said about twenty years. But anyway, we did the best with what we had. Um, and the, the, Mr. Todd is asking what my view is on the state of global finance. Now, I am somewhat mystified by the extent of your systems of wealth today, where individuals have more wealth than some of even your current nations. There's certainly more wealth than what we amassed in our time. Uh, by your billions of dollars and trillions of dollars. Such things are unknown to us. The concept of I, you, know, such wealth. Now, I died a fairly well-off man. Mr. Jefferson, unfortunately, did not. Um, his finances were much more in arrears than mine. I had enough money when I died that I left you know, fair, simple legacies to my family and some two friends and to these two cities that brought me up so well, Boston and Philadelphia. But your billionaires, your Mr. Gates and Allens and Mr. Buffetts, uh, you know, the concept of them possessing such wealth, not to say it's right or wrong, but simply the concept of that much wealth is rather interesting to me. But the idea of global finance, now we had global finance when I left to be a minister uh, in France, and before that to be a representative of, the, of some of the colonies in England, I carried with me letters of credit from my bankers in America to bankers in Europe. So they knew what wealth I had and that I could draw upon that wealth from them. So that was somewhat a, a letter of credit, much like your credit cards today, which states this man, or this woman, I suppose, has this much access to financial capital. And so those letters had to be established. It wasn't We weren't all carrying around our silver and gold with us at all times so there was a system of global finance and certainly when i was in france trying to secure financial support for our efforts that again uh, was carried on in much of letters from one banker to the next from one exchequer to the next and so there there was a system of global finance it was not all just how much gold you carried in the hold of, of your ship certainly that was some but it was done a lot in, the, in just letters, uh, very secured, very coded to in, ensure that there was no fraud. So uh, the idea of global finance, ex- source extends beyond that. You look back in, in Shakespeare and you'll see and um, other writers of the period, of various period, periods, you'll see um, you know, people writing letters from one bank, the Medici and some of the great um, houses of the of the Jews, uh, the financial institutions run by them, because they could were allowed to charge interest for money, uh, which of course we eventually got over our uh, aversion to it in the various uh, developments of society over the many uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. But as far back as you go, the idea of some sort of credit and financial establishment banks, uh, the Medici, of course, was a great uh, family of finance as well as trade. Um, and helped establish and allow the Renaissance and exploration to to endure and expand. So yes, we had global finance in in my time. However, uh, and we also had debt, Uh, how he mentions here, the level of household debt um, that existed uh, in my time, as opposed to yours. Yes, we had household debt, and Mr. Jefferson, aforementioned, uh, had a great deal of household debt. He was never able to really secure himself from it. Some of that was the issue with uh, the creation of the United States, where the all nations' debt would be combined into a national debt, and Virginia, and he personally had, paid off his war debt, and they had to assume more debt, which put him back into arrears. Uh, So people had household debt. Now, Again, the imbalance of your time worries me. The fact that you have such people having such power, such amassing, not only your people, but also some of your businesses, being able to have more money, more power amassed. I understand recently some of your global petroleum companies have really said, well, we're not really a a United States company. We're we're maybe founded here. We may be uh, corporate headquartered here, but we're not really a, a company of the United States. We're a global company. Well, in, in an odd way, that is an ideal, that you do not have countries, you do not have borders, it, you are all one country, but certainly someone must have authority over them. Uh, if absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, and such wealth concentrated into such few hands can lead, to my mind, to nothing but trouble. For, for indeed, mankind is always interested in both majesty and slavery and they will acquire majesty if they can, the ultimate power, and they will acquire slaves if they can. Uh, We were never able to, to exit the evil influence of slavery in my time. I certainly, when younger, owned slaves, and only became later convinced that slavery was an evil that must be eradicated. But I understand that slavery still exists in your time. People will towards that. And people will, if, they, if their business is only concerned with monetary aspects and ultimate profit, that they will find that profit somehow. And the easiest way is to drive down wages to to nothing. And so even in your time, there is still a slave state. Even in your country, there is it's illegal and it's not supported by any government, but there is still slavery even in your time and in your country. This is untenable. It marks your society with ill. But it is brought about because people who have ultimate power of money will do whatever they can to secure that. And as I said, one of the ways is to drive down the cost of labor. And when you have a a fair regard for equal pay for equal work, when you have a regard for people's human rights as much as the rights of your company to profit, then you shall have more equality and less distress in the world, but you cannot have that and personal fortune and personal freedoms that cause others to be in a state of subjugation, simple said. So yes, if a government removes—the question was uh, my thoughts on the quagmire the governments are getting into catering to the ever more super rich—you have today the legacy that we stumbled with, which was creating a a nation who still has a sovereign, but that sovereign is the mass of people. The sovereignty of America, of the United States, is that the people are in charge. They are the sovereign. They are the one which heeds must be given to, that they have ultimate authority. It is not the president. It is not the Congress. It is not your judiciary. It is the people at all times, and that that is the only business the government, the president, the Congress, and the the judiciary have to deal with. It is not to the judicial branch to establish people who are not people, such as your businesses as uh, people—such a thing would have confused us, ultimately—but to care for the people who are born and people who become United States citizens this is the people that the government should be catering to not just those as mr hamilton may put it the rich the well-born and well-educated but all citizens the right of citizenship is sacred is undeniable and is ultimately what the business of a society is to support anything else is tyranny and must be changed but luckily you still have the vote you still have the ability to bring about change. And if the people stand up and demand rights for the people, the government has no choice elsewise other than to obey. You are their sovereign. You are their, crudely put, their boss, their their management. They serve you. Never forget the government serves you. And what government you get is a government you deserve. You vote it in, you advise it, but when you give up a little essential right for temporary safety and comfort, I'm afraid you do not deserve either safety nor liberty. So, assume the responsibility, become involved, and enjoy the rights of freedom and liberty liberty, egality, fraternity. These are the things which we strove to serve. It has been my effort to serve those with my humble thoughts. I hope that these ramblings have served to be some degree of interest to you, and that you will come back again as we produce more of these podcasts. I would like to thank Mr. Aaron Ziegler of chopbard.com for producing these episodes, and look forward to our next chance to chat. Um, I will now end and bring back the presenter for a few closing comments. Thank you so much. I am now, as I have ever been, your most humble and obedient servant, B. Franklin. <laughs> Greetings. My name is Greg Robin Smith, and I am honored to be the presenter of Benjamin Franklin, live, on tour, live and impersonated. And this is our podcast number three. And I want to thank our two readers, Todd from New Zealand and David from Salt Lake City, for writing in. Um, And I hope that they feel that their questions have been properly answered. Please do write us. You can write us through ben at ben-franklin.org. Please put Ben Franklin for President in the subject line so I know how to sort it out from my various incendiary things. The Ben Franklin program is available for a Skype presentation over the Internet uh, to your club, your school, your um, your gathering, your community group, your church, etc. And also I tour extensively. And I presented in Texas, in Oregon, in Philadelphia, in Washington, D.C., gone and traveled far and would be happy to return again Uh, again you may look at our website which is at www.ben-franklin.org and see there some of our information including uh, this may be old news if you're listening to this podcast beyond the date but on june 30th i'll be at act theater in seattle For three performances at two, five, and seven, tickets are $25 a piece. You may find links to that information at our website, again, www.ben-franklin.org. And if that date has passed, well, know that I will be happy and delighted to come to your town. It is fairly easy to arrange, and we have ways of paying for it through crowdsourcing, such as Indiegogo.com and Kickstarter.com, who I think is just a marvelous idea for getting many people to pitch in to support a cause and that way you get cool paraphernalia from franklin uh, and uh, podcast uh, tickets you get uh, pdfs of my books etc we do have other things to talk about as the weeks progress thank you so much for listening i am now as i have ever been your friend craig robin smith Thanks again to Aaron Ziegler of ChopBar.com for producing these episodes and getting them up on iTunes. See also our podcast, An Actor's Shakespeare, single subject podcast, no more than 15 minutes on various aspects of working on with and under the influence of William Shakespeare. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron.